The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Carlotta Rabello. Coming up... Communities thrive when they sustain their institutions. Part of that is A, having the institutions, but B, preserving that institution while promoting density. You know, we are a firm believer that density is a key component for what the future of, you know, living is in all the gateway cities. This week is all about empty space, specifically the gaps above our buildings and how to best utilize them. We'll be exploring the concept of air rights on both sides of the US-Canada border, with a development that's unlocking the airspace above an inner New York City school and a Toronto-based cultural center said to be fitted with a less lauded vertical extension of its own. Plus, we delve into the world of protected views in London and how they hold up in the 21st century. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Carlotta Rivello. High-rise living and working is just one of the many solutions for tackling an urgent demand for more space within our cities. And as this need for densification grows and developers continue to seek empty space to place their next projects, many low-rise buildings with highly desirable footprints are finding themselves looking up. The utilization of a landowner's air rights is increasingly being seen as a way to preserve historic buildings in cities while taking advantage of the prime locations of their sought-after plots. One such case is the Claremont Hall development in New York's Morningside Heights neighborhood. This project saw a mixed-use tower spring up above the campus of Union Theological Seminary, providing financial help to the school below while creating new real estate in the space above. Sergeant Gardiner is a partner at Robert A.M. Stern Architects, and Brian Reardon is the Vice President of Development at Lendlease, a global real estate group with operations around the world. They work together on the Claremont Hall project, and I'm happy to say they join me now to discuss it further. Sergeant and Brian, thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. Brian, if we could start with the basics, what exactly are air rights and why are they so useful for unlocking potential in our cities? Air rights are a New York City phenomenon. Every single piece of land has a prescribed square footage that can be built on. There are parcels of land in New York City that have not been built to their full capacity, which was the case for the Union Theological Seminary. The difference between the amount of actual square footage and allowable square footage is referred to as the air rights. In New York, the one key point is that air rights cannot be transferred across the city street 
So they need to be activated on the parcel with which they are associated. It's quite interesting, this idea of, you know, having the right to, uh, I guess, control and develop this unused airspace. This is why they become important, because suddenly you unlock all this other potential, isn't it? Air rights are so important here because Union Theological has this beautiful campus. And in an effort to modernize their campus and to unlock the value of their real estate on the site, the air rights have been such an important revenue stream for the institution. And I think what's key here is unlocking those air rights allows Union Theological to stay in New York City, to stay in this neighborhood. And what that means is this neighborhood has a mix of institutions, but then also, interestingly for us, residential use in this site. So it becomes a more interesting set of uses on this site. Well, let's stay then with this example about Claremont Hall and our listeners who might not be familiar with the idea. Perhaps we'll take a step back and just talk a bit about how this idea of using air rights in this project, how did it come about? The Union Theological Seminary, it's a hundred-year-old campus in New York, and they had decades of deferred capital improvements that they needed to make. So as they looked to you know, how they were going to crack the code on updating their campus, they realized that the potential cost exposure was equal to their endowment. So they started investigating, you know, what opportunities they had to make sure that they were able to still deliver the mission of the institution. So that included many opportunities, including moving the campus, looking at various things. But ultimately, they realized that they had these air rights And the most appropriate solution was to maintain where they were, but monetize those air rights. And, you know, Lend-Lease and our partners were brought in to help crack that code. And we looked to Ramza, you know, they're a iconic New York architect, and we needed them as a partner to really take those air rights and make a really special building. It's a 41-story, 354,000-square-foot mixed-use condominium building. So it includes 165 condos, as well as 54,000 square feet of classrooms, academic offices, and faculty housing units over the first nine floors of the building. It's a complex architectural puzzle actually utilizing the air rights in a beautiful and productive way. For us, it was very important to start at the sidewalk. So our building actually replaced a very small building called the service wing. There are two entries into the building. First, at the courtyard level, we've created academic space, which completes an academic circuit on the southern part of the courtyard for Union Theological. Then there's actually a one floor difference in section from the courtyard to Claremont Street, which is a beautiful but quiet street immediately adjacent to Riverside Church. And that is the level off the street where people travel up into the tower. Now, we were required also to provide 70 parking spots for the project. And the initial thought is, oh, just do them in the basement. But we actually didn't do that. We actually did them on the second and third floor, utilizing parking stackers so that at Claremont level and at the courtyard level, those ground levels were activated to their maximum extent. So it's all about 
activating the street level and the courtyard level in a very productive way. With a complex project such as this, I'm curious to hear if there's other things that had to be reconsidered because there were new problems that uh, emerge when you shift things to, as you just described, this intricate puzzle of adapting the space like that. There's the issue of cost. So this is not an inexpensive building. The work sessions actually to work out the parking, it took us at least a month working as a team to work out the parking. And then in terms of cost, we have been working for the last three, four years, very, very directly with Lend-Lease. One of the great things about Lend-Lease, our client and who Brian represents, they are both the developer and they're also constructing the building. And so from the very beginning, we have worked between the architectural team and the development team to control cost. So we came up with our basic scheme and came up with the structural scheme, which uses a lot of concrete. And we're very, very thrilled that we've come through a very intense cost period and the project is on budget. So to us, it was that integrated process of design working so closely with the construction team that achieved what we wanted to achieve. Between the developer, the construction company, the architects, and the other design professionals, each entity has its own toolkit of ways that they can help crack the code. And throughout the entire process, you know, there were constantly challenges that we were fighting back. And it was that integrated approach of, you know, being a developer in a construction company that allowed us to be more thoughtful and working directly with the architect and others to like crack the code on how do we keep this within the budget. Obviously, density is a big issue. And obviously, looking at this project and looking at air rights and more in general, could this be a way to tackle density in a way that's beneficial to cities around the world? Perhaps we come to you first, Brian. Yes. So we, we believe communities thrive when they sustain their institutions. So Part of that is A, having the institutions, but B, this development combines the fact of preserving that institution while promoting density. And, you know, companies like Lendlease and Ramza specialize in partnering to help crack the code on figuring out those solutions. And, you know, we are a firm believer that density is a key component for what the future of, you know, living is in all the gateway cities. A mix of uses makes a city so much more vibrant. And here, we're thrilled to bring residential use to the Union Theological Campus and then to this greater Morningside Heights neighborhood as a whole, which, of course, includes Columbia University. You know, this project is not a simple project. It required a lot of thinking, a lot of complex design work. But as a result, we have on our campus a vibrant institution, we have faculty housing, and then we have residential units above all mixing together. And for us, it's a more vibrant, rich experience for everyone. The ultimate accomplishment has been keeping Union Theological in New York and actually making their campus better. And so we're thrilled. Sergeant Gardiner there. And before that, Brian Reardon. Thank you for joining me today on The Urbanist. Next, we head to Canada, 
Toronto is among the fastest-growing cities in North America, and it's continued to grow skyward. A recent report suggests that there are more cranes currently in Toronto than in any other city on the continent. But unlike many other big metropolises around the world, air rights in Toronto are decided on a case-by-case basis, leaving little uniformity in the process of building density in the city. Monaco's contributor Thomas Lewis explains more. In 1964, in a suburb north of downtown Toronto, a brand new cultural complex was opened to the public. The Japanese-Canadian Cultural Centre, designed by the revered Canadian-Japanese modernist architect Raymond Moriyama, was a significant addition to the cityscape in Toronto for several reasons. This was a building that became a very important place for the Japanese-Canadian community in that city at a time when they were just starting to feel comfortable and to feel full members of the community after a very difficult history. Alex Bozikovic, speaking to me there on the telephone from San Diego, is the architecture critic for Canada's The Globe and Mail newspaper. The difficult history that he is referring to is that of the persecution and forced internment by Canada's federal government of thousands of Japanese Canadians in the aftermath of the bombardment of Pearl Harbour in December 1941, the legacy of which has been long and profound here. Raymond Moriyama's cultural centre was therefore, for many, a place that represented a break with a complicated period in Canada's wartime history. So Moriyama used a combination of modernist influences. The building definitely has some Corbusian language with his own interpretation of traditional Japanese architecture. Many Japanese Canadians were interned during the Second World War, even those who had been born in Canada, which obviously was a deeply traumatic experience for people individually. And it also had a predictable effect of making a lot of Japanese Canadians feel very reluctant to engage with larger society, you know, even people who had been in the country for multiple generations. And so having a community center that was a place of pride for the community and a building that outwardly celebrated Japanese heritage was important both as a symbol of the community's sort of re-emergence and as a symbol of the emergence of a new generation of architects, including Mr. Moriyama. The building served its original purpose until the early 2000s, when it was sold and transformed into an Ismaili religious and cultural centre, and it was Raymond Moriyama's practice that was commissioned to add Islamic motifs to his original designs. But at the onset of the pandemic, it was sold again, as Alex Bozikovic explains. The centre closed and the family who owned it sold it on to developers. And the developers who own it now have plans to remake the site. So their plan at the moment includes two towers, one of which would rise up directly on the footprint of the existing building. Essentially, it would rise up from the Japanese-Canadian Cultural Centre itself. And some pieces of the building would be preserved, which is sort of the custom in Toronto. The way that heritage planning, as it's known here, is done is often that pieces of a building, particularly the front facade, are kept in place or are pulled apart and put back together when a new building is constructed. So it's not complete demolition, but it would involve the demolition of most of the structure and I think would compromise it in fundamental ways. Moriyama's building, according to the developers' plans as they are now, would effectively become a plinth for a tall new residential tower, keeping the cultural centre's facade, but gutting it of some of its most valuable attributes, the modernist spatial design inside. 
The size of the land on which the cultural centre sits would, it seems, allow the new towers to be built elsewhere on the site, preserving this remarkable piece of modernist architecture in Toronto and keeping it intact. But the air rights above the cultural centre were included in the sale, meaning that the developer is within its right to build skyward, which speaks to the case-by-case basis by which air rights are often determined here in Toronto. I guess the basic idea is essentially transferring density or the right to build from one place to another. The amount of density you can put on any site does matter in Toronto, in the city of Toronto. It's just measured in a very weird way. That's not the only variable, and the system is just not super precise. Like some cities, including London, including New York, have very precise systems in terms of how much density is allowed. In Toronto, it's always kind of a question. Like everything is a negotiation. So it's a very disorderly and unpredictable way of doing things. So in order to figure out what's permissible on a certain site, you know, you start with the size of the site, which in this case is quite large, and then you look at essentially the precedence or the buildings around it. So the Japanese-Canadian Cultural Centre site sits within a district that now is ripe for development because there's new transit infrastructure being built nearby. So there's no question that tall buildings and a significant amount of density will be allowed in general terms on this site. The question is exactly how much, and that really comes down to a complicated negotiation with the city over a whole host of questions, one of which would be heritage preservation. Increasing density here in Toronto is a pressing issue, particularly as house prices, both for sale and for rent, reach new highs, and the city's population is projected to grow to more than 7 million people by 2050, which makes the area of air rights a particularly significant one here. Alex Bozikovic again. One key point for the urban design here is that it is possible to both preserve elements of historic significance and then to build density next to them. Urban designers often don't like that idea, but it would be very possible in this case to keep the Japanese-Canadian Cultural Centre building and to build a very large tower next to it while leaving it entirely untouched. Now, financially, I believe that's possible. Aesthetically or in terms of urban design, there may be objections raised to you know, a tall building next to a smaller one. But I think that approach is far preferable to the approach of wiping out a site or trying to spread density across a site and make it more regular. I think perhaps a juxtaposition or an irregular form within the city is something that we should be happy to accept if it means keeping places and architecture that are of significance. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. Finally today, we are back in London, where developers seeking to build vertically have a unique set of guidelines to consider when contemplating where to build. The city has a collection of protected views, outlined in the London View Management Framework. This guideline prevents a variety of sightlines across the city from being obstructed, many of which point at the famous 17th century St. Paul's Cathedral. But are these protected views hampering progress in the UK capital? Joining me in the studio to unpack this is Fred Manson, an urban renewal specialist at the Design Council. Before we begin, though, I wanted to look back at an episode of our sister show, Tall Stories, on this very subject, which aired in 2016. Here's Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan giving us his view from back then. Richmond Park is pretty much the furthest away from the centre of London you can get with an Oyster card. The largest of the city's eight royal parks is a bucolic expanse where red deer roam free. 
But while it provides an ideal escape for Londoners frazzled by the city, the city cannot escape Richmond Park. To find out why, make your way through the deer to King Henry's Mound, a hill thought to be a Bronze Age burial chamber. At its summit, you'll find a public telescope. Aim it northeast, and you'll be able to look through it down a carefully maintained corridor cut into the seemingly natural tree line and see the drum and dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, 15 and a half kilometres away. This view is one of eight protected views of the cathedral, forming a regulatory system known as St. Paul's Heights. W. Godfrey Allen, a man with the enviable job title of Surveyor to the Fabric of St. Paul's, originally devised the system in 1937 in response to public backlash over new, tall structures like Unilever House that blocked views of the dome. Quaint as they may seem, the heights have profoundly influenced the development of London ever since, especially now the city has begun to grow vertically. Take, for example, 122 Leadenhall Street, better known as the Cheese Grater. It's one of London's most recognisable skyscrapers. But the distinctive wedge shape that lends a tower its nickname is designed so the building doesn't block a protected view of St Paul's from Fleet Street, specifically one from outside Ye Old Cheshire Cheese Pub. And another city skyscraper, 20 Fenchurch Street, or the Walkie Talkie, was scaled down from nearly 200 metres in its original plan to 160 metres when constructed to maintain a clear backdrop of the dome from St Paul's when viewed from Fleet Street. The amendment didn't stop the building from winning the 2015 Carbuncle Cup for the worst new building in the UK. Concerns about views of St Paul's continue to influence some of the biggest developments in London. In 2014, Oliver Carrow, the modern-day surveyor to the fabric of St Paul's, joined in public criticism of Thomas Heatherwick's proposed Garden Bridge on the ground that it would adversely affect views of the cathedral. And it's not just St Paul's, views of the Palace of Westminster and the Monument to the Great Fire of London are also protected. So what to make of these protected vistas? No one would dispute that these buildings are some of the great architectural treasures of London. But the city is facing a profound housing crisis which more high-rise structures could significantly alleviate. The protected sightlines complicate this. Not only do they make it difficult to get planning permission for tall buildings in the first place, they also raise the cost of those that are approved. The feats of construction required to dodge the protected views are costly, as are the fees of the big-name architects whose designs are more likely to get the green light. As a city moves into the future and its skyline develops, London's planning bodies have to strike a balance between the significant social and economic advantages that could derive from taller buildings and the intangible but somewhat magical value of being able to see the Dome of St Paul's from the top of an ancient burial mound in a deer park. It should be possible to strike a happy medium, but it'll take political will and a clear vision to shape a skyline fit for all of the city's inhabitants. Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan there. Let's bring you in now, Fred. Thank you for joining me today. If we look at the last five years or so since we published that report on London's protected views, how do you feel the situation has evolved since then? Protected views have a very long history, and the recent times have been trying to adjust and amend them to take into account what is actually happening. And that is because of the huge pressure now for buildings being taller and taller, and therefore having a bigger and bigger impact. I think the really important change came from the Shard when it was considered. The Shard is in the background view of St. Paul's, but despite that, the planning inspector said, I think it's fine. 
And part of his reason is that the inspector had gone up to Parliament Hill Field, looked out across London and said, really, we've lost the case, so why make a big fuss about something in the background of St Paul's? Nonetheless, views are still important, and they're important because they're a responsibility of each age to think about the future ages and an ability for us to see and look across a city and understand that part of it within the totality. I think protected views are something which we need to think about in a different way. We were challenged when when the Shard was proposed that it was going to take away from an English national subject of the tower on the other side of the river, the Tower of London. And our argument was that this was fitting into the landscape and becomes one of the explainers and doesn't really stop anyone from enjoying the tower unless they want to pretend that they're Tudor people walking around London with you know, a feathered cap. Would you say that going forward, authorities, planners will be able to still enforce these protected views? Or is there a real struggle at the moment to make the case for keeping protected views in London? It used to be that the city was seen as something where the tallest buildings were expressing what was important to that generation, and they, of course, were churches and therefore God. Today, the tallest buildings are clearly about profit, and maybe if we value profit over everything else, that would be fine. So just keep going, keep going. Taller buildings, why not? It always expresses profit more accurately than the last building. The question of enforcement, though, cities like Paris have decided that they're going to have an absolute ban and they're going to stop buildings going taller than than what they are. And many people very much like the centre of Paris and think that it's a a good place. What they did in Paris is they decided that there were other places where tall buildings would be permitted, and that, in fact, the concept in London was there were going to be clusters of buildings that were tall, which would be in certain places. As a concept, it's good, but it's been exercised in a slightly strange way. I think walking along the streets are very nice if they're low buildings. If they're all tall buildings, there's a problem. Where we are now, there's one tall building at the end of the street, which is fine. Along the way, there's two other tall buildings, which are from the University of Westminster. And because they're one or two in an area, and the rest of it's to a much lower density, it seems to work very well. Are there any cities that you think have done things right that could be a good example of how to deal with protected views with the need for accommodating high-rises in a good, elegant, delicate way? I can only think of another negative example, which is Washington, when they said there was going to be a height limit so that you would only see the capital and a few other things above it. And that meant that every single building in the area goes up to that height and it isn't good. So it's got to be more sophisticated than that. Though Washington, D.C. was absolutely right in saying that they didn't want a smattering of tall buildings to get in the way of these great emblems of what the United States was. Could this be then this debate over protected views, I guess, an opportunity to bring in better planning when it comes to high-rise buildings? And you mentioned there the example of having a dedicated area in a city for them that is more thought out. Could this be an opportunity to unlock some better planning? Better planning is a really good idea, but it means that you have to have some priorities and things that you're pointing for. And I'm not sure that that's quite clear. Tall buildings in isolation are not a planning system. And that, in effect, when they did Canary Wharf, looking at it from the other side, it was very important that it was seen as a place that was going to be intense 
and it meant that when the Big Bang came to London, there were offices sufficient for the numbers of people who came. And there, their objective of putting a very tall building in was to make you able to see it from the city of London. And the first tall building was the symbol that you were not that far away from Canary Wharf. Those are all thoughtful strategies about the planning of a city. And that, again, planning legislation is rules, whereas what I'm talking about are concepts and ways of imagining the way that London might develop. And that needs to be rehearsed in a more interesting way and then being inventive about finding ways of putting that into legislation. Well, you mentioned there that the buildings are a reflection of what's the priority for the generation. And I wonder if playing with that sentence, what would you envision as being, you know, what is the view that needs to be protected for future generations, the way you see the trajectory of our built environment going? Well, view, as I say, is one part of it. It really is a question of what our priorities are. And touching back on housing, one of the embarrassing facts is that we don't have a high priority on fair housing and equitable housing for all people. And that's been reflected in what we're doing. To say that we were going to value housing for all people would change the whole planning system and the way that we were talking about these things. So the trouble with planning is it touches on everything. It involves all aspects of human life, but the ones that are really driving it are those which are trying to build a building for a profit motive more than for a beneficial motive. So at the end of the day, it all seems to go back to that same concept of a people-centric approach to building cities, putting people first and making them your priority and not for example, profit, as you are describing. Is that what, in your opinion, is lacking in our cities these days, a more humanistic approach? I would say a social obligation. Humanistic gets complicated, but <laughs> uh, we have to have a social view of what is our shared objective, what we are trying to do in this age to help the next generation and the one after that. And when you start to think those ways, it does really change what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do things. And Tall buildings may be part of that, but they aren't either the solution or the single objective. And if we put tall buildings in a context of everything we were trying to achieve, then I think they would be a fine contribution to London. But how London or any place these days is going to be able to discuss its future, how it's going to take into account effects of environment, the ways that we want to have society operate, is a really big question, but it's one that is too important to ignore. Fred Manson, an urban renewal specialist at the Design Council there, thank you for joining me on The Urbanist. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine. You can find us in all good newsstands or, of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced by myself, Carlotta Rabello, and by David Stevens. David also edited the program. To play you out this week, here's Yas with The Only Way Is Up. Thank you for listening, city lovers. The only-